This is the East Dramacast. With your moderators, Ross Madback, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Welcome back to another East TraumaCast. Today we're going to be speaking of acute pain management in the traumatically injured patient. We recently had a TraumaCast recorded about responsible opioid prescribing. And I wanted to take some time uh, with some experts in the field to talk about the pain management we deal with with the trauma, trauma patients in the hospital uh, and how we can maybe uh, do a better job. So I have three um, wonderful guests, Tom Scott, Paul Dangerfield, and Bob Extramani. I'm Carrie Valdez. I'll be a uh, moderator. So if you all would uh, introduce yourself, go ahead and uh, we'll start with you, Bob. Uh, okay, Carrie, thank you. Hello, everybody. It's uh, Bob Axarani. I am an associate professor of surgery at George Washington University Hospital. I'm uh, the chief of trauma there as well. And uh, only because this is an East podcast, I would be remiss if I didn't say <clears throat> I'm also chair of the East Development Fund. So for those of you guys who have donated to the East Development Fund, this is exactly the type of thing that your money is going towards supporting, this type of educational effort. And for those of you who haven't, I would point out you're listening for free. You need to donate. Thank you. <laughs> All right. All right. And uh, Paul, why don't you introduce yourself, please? Hi. My name is Paul Dangerfield. I'm from George Washington University. I'm the director of acute pain and regional anesthesia. All right, Tom, do you want to introduce yourself? Okay. My name is Tom Scott. I am uh, board certified in internal medicine, anesthesia, and pain medicine. I am a clinical assistant professor at George Washington University, and presently I am out of George Washington University living in Philadelphia, and I've started a consulting business called Nopium, where I work for hospitals to teach them about pathways for minimizing opioid exposure while maximizing non-opioid pain solutions, and I also am opening an outpatient clinic in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Lovely. Well, let's get started. Um, and, Babako, I'm going to throw this first question out to you, uh, since you are our trauma surgeon guest. Why are we making such a big deal out of pain? I mean, honestly, can't the patients just come in, we give them a PCA, send them home with Norco, and just be done with it? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so, uh, you know, one thing that we all acknowledge is trauma surgeons are, uh, you know, we know a, a fair amount about pain management because of the nature of our business. Uh, but the problem is, for the last 20 years or so, we've all really been taught to center our therapy on uh, use of opioids for management of pain. And that has had some fairly dire repercussions, not the least of which is the opioid epidemic that we now uh, have to deal with. And I think most of the trauma surgeons in the audience uh, who are maybe my level or perhaps a little bit more senior to me, uh, are familiar with the days when we would go to trauma clinic and we would just be, we would just hand out like candy men prescription after prescription for 40, 50, 60 Percocets. Um, those days are over. And they're over for two reasons. First and foremost, uh, the opioid epidemic to which I already alluded. And secondly, um, as I think Tom and Paul can talk about, uh, the opioid shortage in the hospital. So it's not a good thing to do, 
And as luck may have it, we really can't do it anymore because of the opioid shortage that we have during the acute inpatient stay. So that has resulted in a couple of things. That has resulted in us as trauma surgeons becoming more and more educated by our pain medicine colleagues on use of non-narcotic means to control acute pain and minimize the need for narcotics. Uh, and I think it's really taught us as a trauma discipline the benefits that an acute pain service can bring to our practice in the inpatient setting. You know, when I was much, much younger, when you, you know, you call the pain guys for an epidural, right? They were kind of the epidural service. And that is absolutely not the case anymore. And I think we've educated ourselves on the incredible benefit that these people can bring as a discipline with a huge armamentarium that is far beyond just an epidural um, to get a much more holistic approach to, to control of pain uh, in the acute care setting. And so, as Paul and I have discussed, kind of in front of the OR board on several occasions, perhaps the only good thing that will come from the opioid shortage that we are experiencing is a culture change on the trauma surgery side where we will stop utilizing opioids as our first uh, and most important workhorse agent. So that's, that's kind of how I, uh, you know, see this whole argument, and that's why I really think that having Tom and Paul on the podcast as dedicated pain specialist from the anesthesiology world uh, is extremely helpful uh, to teach us. Well, you uh, bring up a, a good point, and maybe, Paul, if you could explain. Uh, you're the Director of Acute and Chronic Pain Services, and uh, in full disclosure, GW is also where I did my training. Could you um, just describe to the listeners, like, what, what is the pain service? What is it made up of? What do you all do? What's your role in the hospital? There are three different pain services in the hospital currently. There's a chronic pain service that's housed outside of the hospital that sees inpatient consults, a palliative care service that sees inpatients, and then we have the acute pain and regional service that uh, initially took care of primarily uh, patients that were having surgery, knee replacement, shoulder replacements, and such, and then we've expanded in recent years in our collaboration with Dr. Serrani and the other trauma surgeons to work with the, the trauma patients as they're coming in and uh, helping to better manage their pain. To build on something that Dr. Serrani has said a few minutes ago, I, I think we have kind of simultaneously been dealing with a crisis of an opioid addiction and all of the deaths that people are familiar with. We have an opioid shortage uh, crisis within the hospitals, mostly intravenous drugs. But the thing that I think that's really been lost in the mix is that most hospitals in the country, if not around the world, still are not doing a great job of just treating the pain and reducing the basic human suffering. And one of the things that I think on the acute pain service that we're doing by using the regional and multimodal techniques and things we'll get into later that not only are we reducing their exposure to narcotics, but I think we're dramatically reducing their suffering and decreasing the risks of them having chronic pain issues later uh, and then getting them back up and moving faster. Um, one question I want to ask, maybe uh, Paul or Tom can refer to this. Is there a difference in pain for trauma surgeon, trauma, surgeon, for a trauma patient versus a surgical patient? And, and the reason I ask is in trauma, the patient experiences all the pain in their motor vehicle collision. Then they come into the hospital, we start treating it. 
in surgery, we put a patient under general anesthesia and then cause the trauma. It, it, is there a different experience in those two types of patients? I love that you described the pain as an experience, Carrie, because I think that's the critical way of, of thinking of it. I, I think the first answer is yes, there is absolutely a difference between the trauma patient and the outpatient surgical patient's experience. The first component is when you're scheduled for outpatient surgery, you you go into the operating room essentially in most outpatient scheduled surgeries without pain, and you wake up with some non-zero amount of pain. That is a very different experience than having this terrifying, life-threatening trauma um, followed by pain, followed by the interventions that the doctors and the medical system does to both relieve your pain and, and fix the underlying problem and not infrequently save your life. I think it's a fundamentally different experience. There is another complicating factor, I think, that makes trauma patients different, and I think anyone who's worked in a trauma patient setting recognizes that trauma patients from a population health standpoint have higher incidence of substance abuse. They have higher incidences of mood disorders, and sometimes, and I've heard trauma surgeons describe it as such, we can think of trauma in some ways as a chronic disease. Patients with one trauma come in again and again with other traumas, and it becomes this chronic behavioral issue where the decisions that led to them to wrap their car around a telephone pole or get stabbed or get shot, those same behaviors are not cured by our pain treatments and by our surgeries, and they lead to future traumas that need to be treated again and again. And in a subpopulation such as trauma, where you have a very high incidence of substance abuse, one of the other changes we've seen more and more is that these patients are coming in on substances like Suboxone, which is buprenorphine, which is a treatment for drug abuse, which means that even if you had the IV opioids that are on shortage right now, they wouldn't work. We're seeing more Vivitrol. We're seeing more methadone maintenance. Vivitrol, for those of you who don't know, is the depot naltrexone. Um, all of these factors combine to make the trauma patient pain experience, I think, it's very different from what you would expect for outpatient surgery. And it does require a special focus. And where this patient population, I think, is particularly vulnerable, which I think is to Paul's point, is we have to show this population that we care about them. I do think it is still a problem where um, a population that has a higher incidence of substance abuse or made a bad choice that led to their injury is um, a victim of bias and discrimination, and we need to show them that it's not about the opioids, but it is about pain control and that we can care about them and manage their pain, and it doesn't necessarily have to be with an opioid. And I think healthcare providers get frustrated because we think, oh, gosh, well, if I can't do an opioid, then sorry, I guess you, uh, you made some bad choices and it's just going to hurt, so tough. And then we, we kind of switch off uh, emotionally and just decide there's nothing we can do, and, and therein lies the opportunity. Um, for us to treat them differently. So that, that's a long answer, but I think trauma patients are different, and there's a lot of opportunity here that's not just about opioids. It's about treating the pain, and it works, and it's cheap generic drugs. I, I agree okay. with everything that Tom said. Just to, to add on to something, um, when you talked about the, the patients that were um, scheduled for surgery versus the people that are hit by a car, shot, and then come in afterwards, we do most of our blocks preoperatively, and, and in that we're preventing something that at least I, I'm just starting to be able to understand the concepts of central and peripheral sensitization, and they seem to have a big impact on 
how easy or how difficult it is to manage the pain after the insult, and then may also have um, some long-term implications on the development um, of chronic pain as a result of poorly controlled acute pain. And that's another challenge that we have with those trauma patients where uh, appropriately so much of the focus when they initially arrive in the trauma bay is saving their lives is how quickly can we get to the patient and start to do our work. And and we really have evolved over the last few years at GW where we're now called as soon as the CAT scan shows rib fractures, they're calling us for paravertebral blocks. And that's evolved into the long bone fractures and uh, doing tap blocks and starting ketamine infusions when the patients are getting their X-lap so that we can, as much as possible, minimize that central and peripheral sensitization and hopefully reduce the long-term pain issues that the patients have to deal with. <clears throat> Great lead into the next uh, segment of the trauma cast I want to get into. Let's let's follow a patient through the hospital. So I want to talk about really four areas. We're going to talk about the trauma bay, and then we'll talk about the ICU when they're intubated, as well as the OR when they're intubated. Then we'll take that patient, excavate them, put them on the floor, and then we're going to discharge that patient. I want to hear your perspective on how do you manage their pain um, from start to finish. So let's start with the trauma bay. So a patient comes in, the MVC, uh, multi-system trauma, rib fractures, maybe a lung bone fractures, abdominal trauma. Uh, Bob, if you're, you've shown up, it's level one, you're in the trauma bay. How do you start managing their pain from that point? Well, I mean, certainly in the trauma bay, <clears throat> still the uh, the workhorse agent is going to be an opioid, more often than not fentanyl. Um, once in a while, not, not uncommonly, I suppose, hydromorphone or dilaudid um, <clears throat> intravenously. Um, really not a good time to think about upfront things like um, NSAIDs. Um, uh, George Washington, uh, Oframev, IV Tylenol is under control by the pain service because of its cost ramifications. So we don't really utilize that in the ulti- you know, the, the completely acute setting, which is the trauma bay. So there we're really still talking about opioid-based therapy to, to control the pain. But Paul's point is well taken. As soon as we uh, obtain our imaging studies and have an understanding of the nature of the injury itself, then we'll be very quick to call the pain service. And in, at least in our mind, the next step, uh, if the person has injuries amenable to it, would be transitioning to uh, regional analgesia. That We can do that within the first several hours after arrival to the hospital. All right. Now the patient has... Uh hemodynamically unstable splenic injury. So you're going to go to the OR, they get their X-flap, they're intubated, they pop out, now they're in the ICU. And I'm, I'm going to kind of skip the OR experience for a moment just because that's not really what the trauma surgeon manages at that point. But the patient comes into the ICU, they're intubated. Um, what are some options we can do for pain? Should we just put everyone on a fentanyl drip and a propofol drip and just wait for them to be able to be extubated? I'll tell you what, before I let uh, uh, Paul weigh in, because um, Paul had a heavy <laughs> hand in, in this phase of care uh, back when we created the protocol, um, I'll step back for a second. When I came to George Washington in 2011, fentanyl drips were completely and totally in vogue. And what I quickly realized is our timeliness to extubation was astronomically long. Our need for tracheostomy tubes was, in my opinion, astronomically high. And, you know, these people just simply were not waking up. And this concept of fentanyl as a short-acting drug is simply wrong. Fentanyl has a large volume of distribution. If a person is obese, they become kind of a fentanyl lollipop or a fentanyl depot, and they will not wake up. 
and then your tracheostomy rates will go through the roof because they'll be delirious and so on and so forth. So <clears throat> as soon as we hit the ICU, if you're intubated, having undergone an emergency X-lap, damage controlled, I'm, I'm talking about like good stuff over here, we are going to start leaning on non-narcotic infusions immediately, ketamine infusions, lidocaine infusions. There is no such thing at GW as an opioid infusion. Obviously, the person needs PCA, intermittent doses of um, opioids. The other uh, huge step forward we made, and this is a manuscript that's been submitted with John Messing, my nurse practitioner as the lead author, we created a pathway that we call AACA, Authorized Agent Controlled Analgesia. Frankly, you can call it Nursing Controlled Analgesia, but basically it allows the nurse to push the PCA button. And what we realized is by getting rid of the PRN dose, you don't need the nurse to run to the Pixis to get one little dose to have a witness come watch her take it out, to come give it to the patient, and then has to have another witness to watch her waste it. All of those steps result in the nurses not wanting to activate the opioid PRN. That then results in increased pain, which results in increased propofol, and sooner or later someone's going to come by and write an order for an opioid infusion. You're right back where you started from. So by allowing the nurses to use a PCA and push the button for the uptunded intubated patient, you can minimize narcotic need by then utilizing things like round-the-clock Tylenol, ketamine infusion, lidocaine infusion. You can further minimize the narcotic need, and in net sum, your timeliness of extubation will improve dramatically to the point where three, four years ago, the CEO of the hospital tracked me down and said, hey, something's happened. Our tracheostomy rates have dropped precipitously. And for those of you who don't know, a tracheostomy procedure is one of the highest billing codes for the hospital as a whole. Because when you trach somebody, the assumption CMS makes is that person is so sick, they'll waive a lot of other charges and give the hospital a huge amount of money. So the CEO identified this as a drop in revenue. And my point to him was, you're right, our tracheostomy rates have dropped, but that's what quality medicine looks like. And, and I want to keep in mind, um, you know, some of our listeners have never used ketamine or had a ketamine drip. So if you can kind of go over some of the basics of what you mean by a ketamine drip or a lidocaine drip, that'd be helpful. Um, I, I think going back to the operating room with a splenectomy, that there's an opportunity to do a couple of things even before you get to the ICU. Uh, starting the ketamine that I'll come back to in a second and then putting in tap blocks. I, I think most anesthesiologists, would agree that for an X-lap, an epidural would provide excellent pain control, but most people would not be comfortable putting a low thoracic epidural in a patient under general anesthesia. By using ultrasound, we routinely um, will put tap blocks with catheters in those patients at the end of the operation and then use a continuous infusion over the next several days. And then not infrequently, when the patient's conditions allow, we'll even send the patients home um, with those tab blocks running with on-cue pumps where they can uh, continue the, the benefit of those for several days on an outpatient basis. The ketamine infusion, the ketamine is a drug that got a bad rap um, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s when used in larger doses by causing um, hallucinations and bad dreams and unpleasant side effects. In the late 90s, early 2000s, in the chronic pain setting, they realized that if they used a sub-anesthetic dose of ketamine, a lower dose, that you could go below the dose that causes those unpleasant side effects 
and initially get very powerful relief from neuropathic pain conditions. That led to people thinking, what about acute pain? And it was initially a drug that was only used in the ICU as a result of concern for potential side effects. A little over a decade ago, we were able to get it out of the ICU and start using it on the floor. And on any given day, we might have five to ten patients in the hospital with major spine surgery or trauma patients that are out of the ICU that are getting continuous low-dose ketamine infusions, maybe uh, anywhere from 5 to 15 milligrams an hour. And what we've seen is that the patients have dramatically improved pain control and also substantial reductions in their narcotic needs. For patients that are in the ICU and that are intubated, by being able to reduce the amount of opioids that they require to get comfortable, to Dr. Sarani's point, it makes it a lot easier to, to extubate those patients. The tap blocks also contribute to that. Um, while the dose of affirmative is, is restricted in the hospital because of cost, patients that are in the ICU and are intubated are, are fall within our protocol to do that. And so by adding the Tylenol, the ketamine infusions, the tap blocks, we're able to improve the pain, improve their respiratory mechanics, and lead to a much faster extubation uh, with substantially improved pain control for the patient and re reduce their exposure to narcotics. I just want to follow up on uh, Paul's point. Um, to give you an idea, of, and, and your listeners just an idea of just how potent a pain reliever this is, I mean, we talk a lot about, you know, adding Tylenol on reduces opioid consumption, but how powerful a pain reliever is lidocaine, or how powerful is it in ketamine? Is it really comparable with an, a morphine push? When you take a patient uh, in the operating room with uh, a kidney stone, and you give them either 0 0.1 milligrams per kilogram of an IV morphine bolus. So in a 100 kilo adult, that's a 10 milligram IV push morphine versus a 1.5 milligram per kilogram IV lidocaine push. The IV lidocaine actually provides superior pain relief with an average onset of less than five minutes in comparison to the morphine, which had more side effects, specifically respiratory depression, less uh, significant maximal pain relief, which took about 25, 30 minutes to work. And uh, the main side effects of the lidocaine in a conscious patient was just dizziness and ringing in the ears. No one had seizures. No one had a cardiac arrest. And you get a selective sympathectomy for abdominal surgery patients. So you actually increase the parasympathetic tone, which reduces the risk of an ileus. They breathe better. They don't cough as much on the endotracheal tube, so they don't fight the vent. And when you turn it off, um, they they wake up. Now, there are a few questions around how do you manage this and do they need telemetry or not. And I know that Dr. Dangerfield can speak to um, GW's ongoing research in uh, doing IV lidocaine infusions on unmonitored hospital floor patients, which I think is a really important question that needs to be answered. But uh, I just want your listeners to know that we're not talking about adding on, you know, really secondary or alternative pain-relieving techniques. These are really powerful, evidence-based pain-relieving techniques that are actually part of the national guidelines. The, the IV lidocaine infusions out of the ICU is something that we really just started doing o over the last four to five weeks. And it's, it takes a lot of time with administrators, uh, nursing education, um, restructuring EMRs um, in a similar way that we did over a decade ago with ketamine. 
um, when, when these drugs are restricted to ICU patients because of cost and bed availability, they're things that really are not options for general surgeons or trauma surgeons for their patients. When we can, outside of the ICU and away from telemetry, do continuous lidocaine infusions and ketamine infusions, it, it, it's absolutely a game changer. We're doing a, a lot of very big scoliosis spine surgery now where patients get pre-incision ketamine and lidocaine boluses, infusions started, and we'll continue those for several days postoperatively. And the, the neurosurgeons have said they're really amazed that some of these patients are just getting up and moving faster. Uh, we continue those infusions for a couple of days, and they need very little, if any, narcotics in that perioperative period. Right. And, so, and participating in OTPT, getting them off of the vent. And, and I think it's something for people to look at with their individual hospitals mm -hmm. towards creating the acute pain service that helps to monitor these different infusions that you're dramatically lowering the cost for the institution by getting these patients out of the ICU and then getting them out of the building faster. And I think from a societal issue, we're treating the pain much better and there's a substantially lower exposure to narcotics. You know, whether or not that leads to less addiction time will tell. And it also would appear that it's by lowering the exposure to narcotics, we are lowering the, the risk of the opioid-induced hyperalgesia where people start chasing their tail by adding more narcotics, even the narcotic, even though the narcotics are causing more pain and, and more suffering. And so it's, it's a fair amount of work up front with the hospital administration, nursing administration, and your own department, but the long-term benefits for the institution and, and more importantly for the patients, I think is substantial. So I, I would just go on what Paul said. Um, then I'm going to direct my comments to the trauma medical directors who, uh, who are listening and maybe wondering, you know, where do I even start? And perhaps some of the younger uh, trauma medical directors. Um, you know, where you start with this concept is you've got to team up with your anesthesiologist. That it starts at the doctor to doctor level with an anesthesiologist who has a very bona fide interest in pain control. Um, you know, I got lucky when I came to GW. Paul's been there pretty much his whole career. He had already started down this road, you know, by uh, thousands of miles, and I was lucky enough to just kind of hitch my uh, wagon to his horse. Uh, shortly thereafter, Tom Scott joined us, and uh, we, we kind of became a uh, threesome for this. But I would start with uh, with the coming up with a, a battle plan with your pain specialist. Then everything Paul said, you should play back and, and listen to along with what Tom said. Everyone has skin in this game. You can talk to the hospital administration about cost reduction, um, more rapid throughput, and patient satisfaction. We absolutely speak to our marketing department to, tell, to, to allow them to tell everybody what a great hospital this is for pain control. When we round as a trauma service, I tell the patients, my goodness, you're lucky you're here. That paravertebral catheter that you have in your back that you're going to go home with, that is not common in many trauma centers. Uh, we don't believe in opioid-based therapy at GW. So I say that to the patients. That, in turn, translates to patient satisfaction scores on the HCAPs. That comes back to the hospital administration. The nurses love it because no nurse wants to see her patients strung out on um, opioids. So you, you get your pain specialist on board, and then you appeal to each of the key stakeholders for their particular interest. 
and you kind of move forward that way. But Paul and Tom's points are, ta- are well taken. This is not an over-the-night kind of thing. And if anybody says patient safety, you know, ketamine is unsafe, lidocaine is unsafe, anybody who's listening to this can easily refer to George Washington University Hospital and say they've been doing it for years. We've had no complications. And we would certainly be more than happy to back anybody up uh, whose patient safety committee has any concerns. And one of the things that we haven't discussed, that it, it takes some infrastructure if you're going to have a pain service like this, uh, Dr. Sarani was nice enough to mention the anesthesiologist. I, I think it really comes down to the nurses and the mid-level practitioners that are that constant on the floors and in the patient's rooms when we're going back and forth from the operating room. And, and you need those people to help with education on the floors with the nurses and the staff to monitor the patients to make sure that all of the paperwork and the documentation is correct. And that's part of how we've kept it safe is we have five, nur- five nurses and two nurse practitioners that are a critical part of our infrastructure, and I think they're a critical part of our success with the patients, not only seeing them in the hospital, but following up when patients go home with catheters from regional anesthesia, they get a phone call every day checking in to see how they're doing, and there's a 10- or 15-minute conversation around issues related to pain management that substantially increase the patient satisfaction. I would bet decrease readmissions um, for poor pain control or side effects of excessive narcotic use, nausea, vomiting, constipation, and the such. And so it's, it's the infrastructure to get the infusions out of the ICU, but also the infrastructure and the personnel. And those FTEs that are not easy to come by are, are well worth the investment to the hospital. As an intensivist, I'm pretty comfortable using Presidex, uh, fentanyl infusions, um, uh, propofol, but I just don't have a lot of experience using ketamine or uh, lidocaine drips. If I am interested, is this something you think that the intensivist should get involved with and start doing, or or should we really be leaving these um, kind of uh, pain management um, ideas to an anesthesiologist and, and wait until we actually get an acute pain service before starting to initiate this? That's a really hard question, Carrie. I want to try to jump in on this one. I think that um, where, to echo Paul's point about the importance of training the mid-level staff who are actually administering this, I can't underemphasize the importance of that. I think where things get dangerous, and I really want to emphasize this for the listeners who are the medical directors who are considering, you know, oh, we're going to do this. Uh, we're just going to start ketamine and lidocaine infusions. You know, where things get dangerous is if you just do that, you snap your fingers and say, hey, uh, we've got this patient, we're really struggling, uh, we're going to start doing a lidocaine infusion today, and you just decide on rounds one day that I heard this podcast, all these guys are talking about how great it was, and, and you start doing that. Well, well, I am a huge defender of the value in open laparotomies for the value of a lidocaine infusion, reducing ileus, reducing length of stay, um, reducing a whole variety of quality metrics and uh, improving a whole variety of quality metrics in abdominal surgery, let's consider why people don't do this. And, you know, there is that risk, however small, of seizure and even bradycardia hypotension and cardiac arrest. And if the pump is misprogrammed, 
if the pump has a pre-existing program for a, a lidocaine bag that since we don't do a lot of these, it, it, gets, it gets programmed incorrectly and there is a seizure or there is a cardiac arrest, you say, oh, gosh, we didn't set up to have intralipid on the floor so that we can give it immediately as a rescue. Um, and our nurses don't even know. They say, hey, what's intralipid? Or your trauma surgeons and your listeners say, oh, well, what's intralipid? And the intensivists out there say, I didn't even know you could reverse lidocaine toxicity. Well, you can. But you need to train everybody and carefully consider and bring all your stakeholders together and say, what's the process and the safety measures we need to have in place before we can start doing this? So the answer is, I think, yes, intensivists can start doing this, but you need to educate yourselves on what are the potential toxicities and risks. Now, ketamine is a little bit easier. I think if you, if realistically, if you just limit the ketamine exposure in your patient to less than 0.3 milligrams per kilogram per hour, which in most normal body weight adults, that's 20 milligrams per hour or less, um, if you're really keeping the ketamine doses lower than that, you really don't run into many problems. The incidence of some adverse effect is around 30%, and only around 1 in 9, 1 in 10 will say, gosh, I really don't like this, and then you turn it off, and all the side effects are gone. So ketamine is actually an easier sell from my end, but with lidocaine, I think there's still a lot of potential questions, although there is actually a huge amount of benefit with that. Does that answer your question, Carrie? Sure, and I think it's great. And uh, Bob, if you're an intensivist, what are your thoughts on this? I, I totally agree with Tom. Um, I certainly would not initiate a lidocaine drip by myself. Uh, we are not far enough down the road where I feel comfortable doing so. Um, ketamine drips have been around at GW for at the very least seven years that I've been there <clears throat> as a floor truck. So we initiate the ketamine drip, uh, you know, outside of the acute pain service. However, we will. If a ketamine drip's going up, we will consult the acute pain service. We may not wait for them to come before we initiate it, but we want the whole package. So, again, you don't want to pigeonhole yourself into one drug. Um, so we'll go ahead and start ketamine, and I agree with uh, Tom, uh, any dose less than 20 mg per hour. Uh, I have not had any issues with patients hallucinating. At around 20, some of them may start having some dysphoria, but generally speaking, everyone's fine. Um, but I'll still call the pain service guys to say, hey, is there anything else we can do in addition to ketamine and Tylenol? Do you want to do some blocks? Do you want to do anything else? Sometimes they'll want to hang gabapentin. They'll, do, they'll, they'll bring other tools to the uh, equation. With, with the, the potential for last, uh, the local anesthetic systemic toxicity, uh, on each one of the floors outside of the ICU where uh, we have lidocaine infusions running um, for the the month or two prior to that, we had our acute pain nurses and then the hospital nursing educators did a substantial amount of training on last and the treatments with the intralipid. In the Pixis, on every ward where the lidocaine infusions are, are running, we have a last kit that has intralipid in it. It has kind of a cheat sheet on how to take care of those, and we're doing continuing education on how to treat that, and even with our own acute pain nurses and mid-level practitioners, we've taken that group to the sim lab um, at the hospital, the medical school, and run them through multiple scenarios, whether it's a total spinal or last or a pneumothorax or a lot of different things to get them very comfortable responding to potential problems related to acute pain management. We continue to do so so that their response will be quick and appropriate, and then the constant education 
for the nurses, whether they're in the ICU or out of the out of the ICU, so that they're comfortable dealing with those potential problems. And unfortunately, we've not had any up to this point. The the, the the ketamine, because of its very large therapeutic index, is probably a good place to start. And then as people get more comfortable and the, and the education and the infrastructure is set up, then following up that with a lidocaine. And one of the things, as, as we're getting lidocaine out of the ICU that we found at times where we have the polytrauma patient that has four or five broken ribs where we would put in paravertebral blocks with an infusion, and some multiple long bone fractures where we would put in catheters with infusions that we quickly get to a point where we, we, we can't give that person as much at each one of those injury sites of local anesthetic as we typically would, and the results of the nerve blocks then are, are, are not as good as they would be. And we found by doing the systemic lidocaine infusions in those polytraumas, that we're getting the benefits of, in a sense, the nerve blocks everywhere we'd want to put them without worrying about those systemic toxicities. And I think to, to Tom's point, it, it, you really can't stress the importance enough of having the NSAIDs, having the Tylenol, things that don't show up on, on people's radar very often, especially if you've got people that are still Hypertensive or tachycardia, clonidine is a great drug, whether it's with a patch or a pill to add on that. And then gabapentin and Lyrica, I, I think, still have some role in that acute pain management or the management of a trauma patient afterwards. So let's take our patient. Um, we've gone from trauma bay to OR to ICU or on the floor. We've got patient off drips, and maybe they have some blocks, um, and then uh, all the non-narcotic modalities that Paul just mentioned. That's acute pain. And then they leave the hospital and uh, they go to where? The trauma clinic? Who, who manages all of these medications, these prescriptions, once they've left the building? When the patients leave with catheters in place, we follow them by phone for as long as the catheters are in place. And at times, at the patient's request, because they, they really um, get a lot of comfort out of the phone calls by our nurses, even a few days longer, where we will help give them advice on how to manage the different medications that they're getting. You can, the multimodal pain control almost by definition goes against the KISS principle to keep it simple, stupid, where instead of just taking that one dilaudid pill every four hours, you're now taking Tylenol around the clock and then you're taking an NSAID around the clock and then taking a narcotic only on a PRN level it's not hard to imagine with patients that are not as medically sophisticated that it's easy to get that confused. And so having somebody follow up with them, I think it improves their pain control, um, helps to address those questions. It decreases readmissions. And we know now from this opioid crisis that if, if we don't treat the patient's pain adequately, they're going to go search for a way to do it themselves. And whether or not that's from a loved one's um, prescriptions that they've had for prior surgeries, uh, something on the street, something from friends, that if, if we don't do this, they're going to do it. And it becomes substantially more dangerous when they do it. And so I think it's really important. One of the things that we've talked about, really in the infancy conceptually with it, is the idea of a subacute pain clinic. 
right now we don't have a space where we can see these people on an outpatient basis. They don't fall neatly into the category of a chronic pain patient, and at times they're a bit complicated and time-consuming for the trauma surgeon or the orthopedic surgeon to see them, and I think that they would benefit from somebody with acute pain management skills to help follow them in the subsequent couple weeks to help move them along in a way that will keep them from potential side effects of misusing those medications um, and, and get them up and moving and, and back to life as fast as possible. But how do you pay for that subacute pain clinic is the big question that we're working through right now. But, Paul, a lot of people, you know, are going to think that you've got, like, this gigantic cadre of nurses who are making all these phone calls. It, it may be worthwhile for you to just explain, you know, how big is your team? Uh, we, we have five nurses, and they're not all working on one day, but, but we very frequently will have 15 to 20 patients at home with catheters in place, and they call every one of them and spend, 10, you know, 10 to 15 minutes with each one. And we consistently over the past... 10 to 13 years have heard how much the patients enjoy those phone calls, that there's somebody calling them typically every morning when they're at home and answering their questions, and it's, it's hard to get a hold of your doctor, and you've got to talk to the secretary, wait for somebody to call you back, and with this system, somebody calls them at home. We get their cell phone numbers. We talk to them if they have questions about their catheters. Does the site look okay? They can text us pictures. Um, there are videos that we can give them access to to reassure them what's happening is appropriate and correct. And there are times where they still may be uncertain as, um, if everything is as it should be, in which case they come in and we see them, we bring them up to the, the block bay in the recovery room and evaluate them there. But for the most part, we're able to manage almost everything by phone. This is kind of where a lot of the people in the acute pain arena are, are talking in meetings right now is, what do you do with this transitional point? So you heard Paul and Babak's answer that they're working on a subacute, you know, pain center that's physical, that's face-to-face, -face, and that hasn't been operationalized yet. I'm working on a telemedicine-based model that um, is also not yet operationalized. Well, an expensive problem when people think about it, you know, the question is, all, how are you going to pay for this? The costs of not doing this correctly are apparent to us right now, whether it's the opioid crisis with people dying in record numbers, the lost productivity, the, the, the kind of the tidal wave of hep C, hep B, and HIV that are coming um, to face us down the road. And then you still coming back to the, the fact that, that we as a society are not treating acute pain, whether it's post-surgical or post-trauma, very effectively, and that's been well documented for decades. By doing what we're doing with the trauma patients and the regular surgical patients, we can address the, the real crisis that no one's talking about right now, poorly controlled pain uh, for these patients, and I think decrease the, the, the impact of the opioid crisis by limiting the number of new addicts and better managing whether it's with a subacute pain clinic or telemedicine, and probably the answer is going to be uh, using all of the above to help get access to all of the patients that need the help and giving them a substantially better outcome. And it, it appears from the current evidence that the better 
you treat the acute pain at the time of surgery or injury, the less likely they are to transition from an acute pain patient to a chronic pain patient. And once you've gotten them to that phase, that, then it starts to interfere with their ability to work, to provide for their family, to care for themselves. And yeah. that's a whole other cost and issue that is probably past the scope of this podcast, but can be improved and addressed by doing this correctly up front. Well, I had a personal uh, little story. I had surgery at GW three years ago, and I was sent home with around-the-clock Tylenol, Celebrex twice a day, and then dilated tabs. And I I tell you, I rolled my eyes at the Celebrex and Tylenol. I was like, fine, I'll take it, but I'm really making sure I had my dilated uh, prescription before I left. And post-op, the Tylenol and the Celebrex, the pain was gone. The dilated, if I needed it, I still hurt. I just didn't care as much. I was just stoned. And you had mentioned earlier about needing, you know, telemedicine or acute services. And I think the word you said is uh, for patients who aren't that medically literate. Well, I would put myself in the category of someone who's medically literate. And when I was stoned, I would have a hard time figuring out, wait, when did I take my Tylenol? Am I supposed to take the Celebrex? Did I already take it this morning? And we did start making a chart and writing it down because you're post-op, you're in pain, you're high on narcotics. But I really have to endorse that the Celebrex Tylenol combo, I became a huge believer. And all my patients go home on that now. Yeah. Right. And, and and we get the same response from patients saying, you know, I, I, I was just hit by a car, or I just had this operation, and you're giving me Tylenol and Celebrex. And, and we have to, to let them know that that's not all we're giving them. But if we let them know that they're still going to get narcotics, they just won't need to take as much narcotics. And it's also important, I think, to set up realistic expectations with the patients that doing everything that we're talking about today perfectly, and, and we don't do it perfectly all the time, we're constantly evolving and getting better, it's to let the patients know that it's unrealistic for them to have zero out of ten pain if they were hit by a car three days before or they just had an X lap for whatever reason, and that we're going to do everything that we can to reduce the amount of pain that they are. But I think part of where we get into trouble is, is the unrealistic expectation of zero out of ten pain. Yeah. And that and, and that becomes a bit of a problem, and that's where having the follow-up conversations on a daily basis with our acute pain nurses help remind people to have realistic expectations. It helps to keep people on track. It helps to let them bounce off their concerns. Am I doing it in the correct order? Um, because anybody who's had an operation is is not on their A game, and it's going to be hard for them to know what to do and how do we set the infrastructure up to put those patients and their families in a position to succeed. Well, these have been all wonderful points. We are uh, just starting to run out of time. Um, I just want to give you all an opportunity uh, to share, similar to how Tom suggested, some things that uh, your trauma surgeons can do right now. Uh, Paul and Bob, if you want to also chime in, what, what advice besides starting an acute pain service, but what can we do starting tomorrow um, that would make us better at managing pain than what we're currently doing? Um, I mean, I, I guess from my perspective, it depends if you're directing it to me as a trauma surgeon or if you're directing it to me as a trauma medical director. As a trauma surgeon, I think tomorrow you can absolutely start utilizing NSAIDs and Tylenol around the clock and minimizing narcotics. That's just a, that's just a culture change you have to do in your own head and, and just make that transition. Um, that's, that's immediate action. As a trauma medical director, uh, I would tomorrow walk up to the Department of Anesthesiology and say, hey, with whom can I team up to start an overall treatment strategy based on continuous infusion ketamine? I think that's the easiest lift 
the military does it in Afghanistan. Why can't you do it in, you know, Main Street, USA, and get back on as, a, as a, the, the director of the service? Great advice. Paul, anything you want to close with? Well, I, I think the ketamine, it, it's important for people to realize at low doses has an incredibly large therapeutic index. The EMS system in Northern Virginia, near where we work, is, is very innovative, and, and they're, like the military, using ketamine in the field to treat acute pain and for trauma patients, and they've not had any bad outcomes um, while they've had substantially improved pain control. And, and I think that's an important thing. Getting back to the NSAIDs, uh, a fair number of surgeons are not crazy about the idea of NSAIDs because of the risk of bleeding with platelet dysfunction. We've gotten past that on the inpatient basis by using Celebrex, and Celebrex is the only COX-2 on the market, and that has no platelet inhibition whatsoever, and, and we're now using that on spine surgery, neurosurgery, um, and, and have not had any problems with bleeding whatsoever. So I think that that is easier to get surgeons on board with something where you can reassure them that they're not going to have to come back for a hematoma a couple of hours later, that Celebrex is a good kind of gateway NSAID to get your feet wet. And then the Tylenol, whether it's IV in an intubated patient or PO, and because of the shortage of IV narcotics in the hospital now, um, almost every one of our patients going back for elective surgeries is getting 1,000 of Tylenol, 400 of Celebrex, and then 10 of oxycodone preoperatively and um, with very, very positive results. And so that's, that's something that you certainly can continue with the trauma patients. And the nice thing about those medicines is they can take them home. They're relatively inexpensive. And then we probably need to do a better job of, of making it easy, whether or not it's giving little pill containers where they're preloaded for the next several days when patients may not be as clear-headed as they normally are so that they can stay on track without around-the-clock Tylenol, around-the-clock Celebrex for that immediate post-operative period. Well, thank you very much, all three of you, for joining. This is I could talk about this for hours. It certainly is a big problem, and uh, it's nice to hear some innovative solutions for how to solve it. Thank you, Carrie. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much for having us, Carrie. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.